back in 2011, over 20 million people viewed the wedding of Prince William in Cape Middleton at Westminster Abbey in London. 20 million people. On top of that, London was a buzz. Around a million people flocked the streets, waving their British flags in celebration. Trafalgar Square was slammed. The mall leading up to Buckingham Palace was jam-packed with people pressing up against the gates of Buckingham Palace, all so that they could get a peek at the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. And if that's not impressive enough, you should see the 1,900-person guest list of those who actually got an invitation to the wedding itself. Kings and queens, royal dignitaries from countries all over the world. All the famous politicians and religious figures, celebrities galore. Anybody and everybody that's a British somebody got to go to that wedding. And with all these people came this pomp and this circumstance, tuxedos from the finest designers, fascinator hats that only seem to come out at royal weddings, the most crazy-looking hats you have ever imagined in your life, slapped on the side of a head. I honestly don't know how in the world they got it to stick there. Fashion bloggers, commenters going crazy over what their eyes were seeing with these ornate-looking hats. Now imagine, with all this pomp, all this circumstance, and important people on this historic day, imagine if the royal family sent you an invitation to attend the wedding at Westminster Abbey. Imagine that. You're sitting at home. You go to check the mail. And in it is the seal of the queen, the house of Windsor, pleading with you to come to the wedding of their son. How would you respond to that invitation? At first, you'd probably think, well, they must have got the wrong address, right? There's got to be a different Trey Richardson in this city. Clearly, they got the wrong address. But once you realized that it was for you, you would be both dumbfounded and you would be immensely honored. Some would probably put it as their greatest highlight of their life, getting to go to that wedding. In fact, you'd probably go out and celebrate just by getting to partake in that celebration. You'd be telling all your friends, you're not going to believe this. Texting everybody you know. But what if the king of all kings, the king who even created the queen of England herself, invited you to his son's wedding banquet? How would you respond then? Well, today we're going to be considering such a wedding and how many respond to its invitation. And as we'll see, what began with a king giving a wedding banquet for a son turned into, by the end of the passage, weeping and gnashing of teeth. For some, this is a wedding horror story. But how did it get there? Let's jump into the text and let's find out. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14, in the parable of the wedding banquet. Two weeks ago, we began our series on the parables of Jesus. 
And we learn that parables are not just spiritual scavenger hunts where we try to just draw out all these obscure meanings and every little detail of the text. They're not spiritual scavenger hunts, nor are parables just these bedtime tales that illustrate a moral lesson. They're not those either. Instead, we learn that parables are wisdom stories. They're wisdom stories that illustrate a spiritual truth about God's kingdom. That's what parables are. They're stories that ultimately reveal the glory of the king of the kingdom, which is why we're studying them this summer, that as we study these, we want the glory of Christ to be revealed to you. We want you to behold the glory of your king and then live in conformity to him. We want to become like the one that we behold. That's why we're studying these parables. But for some, Jesus' parables are challenging. And Jesus speaks in parables as a response to how the crowds have responded to him. So for Jesus' followers, parables reveal the truth about God's kingdom. But for Jesus' detractors, they actually conceal the truth about God's kingdom. The parables will either be like the hot desert sun just baking down in the, on the already hot, cracked desert ground, or it will be like the spring rain that nourishes the already soft ground so that it can further grow and thrive. That's my prayer, ultimately, for this series, is that these parables, these stories that reveal Christ's glory, would, cause, would cause us ultimately to thrive in following him. That's my prayer for the series. So let's read Matthew 22, 1 to 14 together. Follow along as I read. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to summon those invited to the banquet, but they didn't want to come. Again, he sent out other servants and said, Tell those who were invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went away, one to his own farm, another to his business, while the rest seized the servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged, and he sent out troops killed those murderers, and burned down their city. Then he told his servants, the banquet is ready, but those who were invited were not ready, were not worthy. Go then to where the roads exit the city and invite everyone you find to the banquet. So those servants went out on the roads and they gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. The wedding banquet was filled with guests. When the king came in to see the guests, He saw a man there who was not dressed for a wedding. And so he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him up hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. What on the surface seems like a rough parable, I think is a reminder for us that even hard passages of the scriptures need to be preached, need to be taught, and we need to receive them. 
Not those who are just kind of high-flying, action-packed parables, but even those harder parables that come to us, they need to be taught and focused on. This passage is really focusing on the need to respond to the king's invitation and the consequences that come for rejecting it. As we'll see, those who get to participate in this wedding are not just those who've received the invitation, but they are those who've actually made themselves ready for the wedding. They're those who are prepared for the wedding. This is why I think this is the main idea. The main idea of the text, I think, is this. Participation in the son's wedding is for all who are prepared for it. Participation in the son's wedding is for all who are prepared for it. To put it another way, to participate then, we must prepare now. To participate then, we must prepare now. I think there are three primary movements that are focused on three characters in this text. The first is the king summoning his subjects to come to the wedding. The next is those who were initially invited that actually reject the invitation. And then finally, after calling everyone to come, oddly there is this man who comes, but he's actually not ready for the wedding because he's not wearing the right clothes. All these three movements are ultimately reflected in our three points. Point number one is come to the wedding banquet. Come to the wedding banquet. Verses 3 through 4 and 9 through 10. Number two, point number two, destruction comes to those who refuse to come. Destruction comes to those who refuse to come. We see that in verses 3 to 8. And then in the final third point, we see beware of being unprepared for the wedding. Beware of being unprepared for the wedding. We see that in verses 11 through 14. If you did not get those, no worries. I will highlight them as we move along. Point number one, come to the banquet. Matthew begins with these words in verse 1. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables. So clearly right here, this parable is ultimately not just by itself. It's actually the final parable in a string of three parables about sons. And these parables are part of the bigger story of Matthew's, Matthew chapters 21 all the way to chapter 23. In Matthew 21, we have Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He comes in riding on a donkey in fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. The crowds are laying their clothes in tree branches on the road, declaring, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's actually a bookend with the end of chapter 23. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's why they go together. But not all are throwing their clothes on the ground for Jesus. Instead, Israel's leaders begin challenging his authority. Well, why? Well, as Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, he wastes no time. He gets straight to business and goes straight into the temple. And he begins to drive out all of those who are buying and selling in the temple. This clearing of the temple of trade is actually an act of judgment on the religious establishment for turning a house of prayer into a den of thieves. It's an act of judgment. 
And in response to the chief priests and the elders who begin to question Jesus' authority, Jesus responds to them by proceeding to give them three parables about sons. Oddly enough, according to the Old Testament scriptures, who was a son of God? Israel herself. And so, these leaders are ultimately, Jesus is actually speaking specifically about the leaders, but even more broadly about Israel. Just before our passage in Matthew 21, verse 43, Jesus says this to the chief priests and elders, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Our parable illustrates their downfall as those now on the outside looking in because of their response to Jesus. And so to illustrate this, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a king who gives a wedding banquet for his son. Now when Jesus speaks about the kingdom of heaven, he's speaking about God's redemptive rule and his redemptive reign over human hearts in and through Jesus. That's what he's speaking about right there. He's speaking about God's redemptive rule over human hearts through his son, Jesus. The king here represents God the Father. The son represents Jesus. The wedding banquet represents the end time marriage feast, marriage supper of the Lamb that many of you may remember from uh, Revelation chapter 19. And so the king sends out his servants to summon those already invited to the banquet. Much like a save the date that gets sent out months before the wedding, so also Israelites would send out invitations in advance to the wedding. And then they would notify everyone whenever the feast was ready to come to the banquet. And because this is a wedding banquet for the king's son, the whole country would celebrate for days. This is why even the words that are used here, it's like we begin in the morning and sure enough, by nighttime, someone is being thrown out into the darkness and where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It takes place over a long period of time. It was a long celebration. Because this is a wedding banquet for the king's son, the whole country would have been celebrating this. But oddly enough, that's not the case for this wedding. Instead, those invited, what? They didn't want to come. They didn't want to come to their king's son's wedding banquet. (laughs) And so the king sends out other servants to command them to come to the wedding banquet in verse 4. Weddings for us today, they're often optional. No one's sending you an invitation demanding that you be present for their wedding. They don't send out invitations like that. right? Often there's that RSVP section of the invitation that you can check the box that says, we regretfully decline. And if you're really sweet, then you write a little note in the side of like, we are, so, we, are so, we are so angry that we have to miss. We're so sorry, right? We love you guys. We're so happy and proud of you guys. Oh, wish we could be there. Right? You put that little note in the side. And yet when the king sends out his invitations, there is no RSVP with a box to check that says, we regretfully decline. There's not one. Instead, he commands people to come. He's not saying, hey, it'd be great if you could make it. That would be really, really great. He commands people to come. This is not a take it or leave it invitation. The king is imploring them to come. It comes with urgency because everything is ready. It comes with incentive. 
Because why? This isn't a dinner. This is a feast for the ages. The oxen, the fattened calves, and cattle are all slaughtered. It is ready to go. There's incentive to this. The king can command the people to come because his command rests on his authority as the king. He is the royal sovereign of the land. The command is as important as the one who is giving it. When another townsperson commands me to do something, I'm probably going to take it or leave it. But when the sovereign king himself, the king of the country, gives me a command, what do I know? It's important, and I had better obey it. Often I fear that we miss this when we share the gospel with others. We present the gospel as if it's a good suggestion rather than an urgent summons. This is how Jesus presented it in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. You may remember this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Earlier in Matthew 11, verse 28, what does Jesus say? Come to me. That's a command. And yet there's great comfort in the promise that he gives. All of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He commands you to come to him, but you get rest if you do. There's a great promise with it. Friends, this isn't just Jesus kind of giving some good suggestions. He is giving an urgent summons. He's not just commending the gospel to us. He is commanding us to come. The command is important because it's coming from the king of creation himself. The one for whom and by whom and through whom all things are created. And he's commanding us to come. Come to the son's wedding banquet. This command comes from the king through who though? It comes through servants. Verse 3, he sent his servants to summon those invited. Verse 4, again, he sent out other servants. Later in verses 9 and 10, his servants are sent to wear the fringes of society to invite people to come. But the servants don't summon with their own authority. They summon with the authority of the king. To reject them is to reject the king. They carry the authority as his messengers. They carry the authority of the king with them. Brothers and sisters, you are ambassadors of Christ. When you proclaim the gospel, you, re- you represent the king and his authority. The weight of our message does not ultimately reside with me or with you all and how powerful of an orator I am or how provocative of a speaker that you are or how good you are at evangelism. That's not where the power resides. It ultimately resides with the king and his authority who sent us out. And so when we share the gospel, we're not just giving people a good suggestion. We're not just recommending that they follow Jesus. We are giving them an urgent summons, the command of the king. And he commands you to come to the wedding banquet. And so friends, do we share the gospel as if it's inconsequential? or unimportant? 
hey, it's a good suggestion if you want to follow Jesus. You can take it or leave it. Just do whatever you want. The message of the gospel comes with a command. We command others to come to Jesus, not by our own authority, but by the authority of the high king of heaven. When you share Christ, help others to see that the king of all kings is commanding them to repent of their sins and trust in him as their Lord and Savior. But notice how we go about doing this. Number one, notice that this message is urgent. Number one, it's urgent. The banquet is ready. The time for the wedding has come. Friends, any day Christ could return, it it would be time for the wedding. That's when it's going to happen, that marriage supper of the Lamb. Any day it can happen. And sadly, some have not responded to the invitation to come. Instead, they won't be going to the wedding, but rather will actually get a summons for judgment, as we see in this text. Because the end is near, we must proclaim the gospel with a sense of urgency. We must proclaim it, and we have to watch out for getting so comfortable with the conveniences of this world that we actually lose that sense of urgency. Well, all is just going well. My life really isn't that bad. Do I really need Jesus? Do they really have to hear about Jesus? It's nice and comfortable living the way that we live right now. Yet we cannot get distracted from the sense of urgency. God knows the time is near. We know the time is near, and we've been told it is near. And so we must proclaim the gospel with a sense of urgency. Judgment is coming for some. And we have the hope of life after this life. We can give them the hope of life after this life with a sense of urgency in proclaiming Christ to them. Secondly, not only is it urgent, this message is compelling. It's compelling. This wedding isn't just as good as anything else that's going on in this city, right? It's not. It's not better than anything else that's going on. This is the king's feast, for crying out loud. It's as if the king, what does he do? He's he's calling them specifically to something, and he's calling them to partake in the oxen, the fattened cattle, slaughtered, right? This is a celebration. So this command is not just kind of into nothing, like, hey, just do this and do what I tell you to do. No, he's commanded you to come into this celebration. There is incentive that's part of this. The king is entitled to do so in a way that is legitimately compelling. We're not just kind of giving them a transfer of information. Like, here's everything you need to know to trust in Jesus. There you go. No, they need more than that, right? We want them to understand that this life, that ultimately following Jesus is not just as good as anything else this life has to offer. It's actually better. It is better than anything else this life can give you. So yes, we want them to know the right information in the gospel. But we also want them to understand in that, this is better than anything else you're going to get. Gospel math shows us that it's worth infinitely more to lose everything that this life will offer to you in order to gain Jesus. So we don't want to present what is of infinite worth in just kind of a flat way. 
as if the gospel is like any other news. It is not just like any other news. Coming to Jesus in repentance and faith is worth it. It's like treasure that a man finds in a field. He goes and he sells everything that he has in order to come back by that field so he can have that treasure. That's another little parable of Jesus in Matthew 13. Thirdly, not only is it urgent and compelling, it's for everyone. It is for everyone. After the king's subject refused to come, he sends servants out to the roads exiting the city in verse 9. His invitation is no longer only for those in the city, but it's now given to those on the edge of society, to the outcast. And to show how broad this invitation is, it says that his servants gathered both the evil and the good in verse 10. Now, that's just another way of saying that all kinds of people were invited. Like, everybody was invited to this thing, both the evil and the good. Unlike most weddings where you have a limited number of guests that you can invite, for this wedding, everyone is invited, right? You're not sitting there thinking about your wedding like, are we going to have the budget for that? Okay, we're going to have to seat them with them because we've not got enough space for this wedding. No, this is a wedding with an infinite budget and with just enough space for everybody who is invited to come. Neither, ultimately, right here, this wedding is an endless budget, but one's social status doesn't keep them ultimately from getting an invitation. You have to see that. These are not just city dwellers. These are those outside the city, the outcast. And yet being an outcast doesn't actually hinder them from getting an invitation to be able to come to the wedding. And neither should anyone's background ultimately keep us from extending the gospel to them so that they may have an invitation to join us at the marriage supper of the Lamb. This may look like helping out, at Loving Choices, Pregnancy Center, caring for women, considering an abortion by placing them into the care of Christ, whatever that may look like. Loving Choices often gives a lot of help in that way. It's a wonderful place to be able to volunteer and to do that. It can also look like, or it could mean, engaging the neighbor across the street from you who's of a different culture than you. But not just knowing that they're of a different culture, but then learning about their culture to be able to better engage them with the gospel. Or, as we heard from John and Aaron this past Thursday night, about the need for more laborers to join them in reaching the unreached at the ends of the earth. Might God be calling one of you in here to be able to go and to join them in that work one day? All of these right here are ways in which we can go out summoning people from the fringe of society at the edges of the world, to come in to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Friends, in what ways might your life be structured in such a way that actually hinders you from extending that invitation to the most unlikelies of society? What ways might your life not be structured in such a way that actually helps that and promotes that, but actually hinders that? This message is urgent. It's compelling. It is for all. But not all will come to the banquet. Point number two. Destruction comes to those who refuse to come. Verses three to eight. So as the king summons his subjects to come to the wedding, we get a shocking response. In verse three, it says that they didn't want to come. 
And this wasn't just a one-off response. The type of verb that's actually used right there is talking about a repetitive response of, I don't want to come, I don't want to come, I don't want to come. It's repetitive. It's ongoing. This wasn't just a one-off that said, hey, I don't really feel like coming today. It's continuous. And they're refusing the king. And so the king re-ups the call to come. And what does he say, right? He re-ups the call to come, but what did they do? They paid no attention to it. They went away, one to his farm, the other to his business. Rather than feeling honored that the king would invite them, they don't care. They've got more important things to do than go to the wedding banquet of the king's son. Not only that, but then they take the king's servants. They mistreat them. They kill them and murder them. This is outrageous. People would be demanding justice if this were the case, right? This is unjust. It demands justice. And friends, all of this is meant to depict Israel's rejection of God's prophets who called them back to the covenant with God in the Old Testament. But not just them. It's also meant to depict how God's people and their leaders have responded to Jesus with rejection and refusal. To reject the invitation is to reject the king and his reign. It is outrageous what they have done. And yet this is exactly what God's people and their leaders have done to Jesus. The consequence of Israel's leaders and their followers for rejecting Jesus is destruction. Because of their actions, the king sends out his troops to kill those murderers and burn their city down. Now that can sound harsh, but in reality, it's just for what they've done. It's just. Now you might say to yourself, well, I would never respond to God like this. I would never do this kind of thing. But friends, we've got to recognize who did. It was God's chosen people who belonged, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. From them came the Messiah of God. And they still did these things, as Paul says in Romans 9. Let their rejection and destruction ultimately be a warning to us of indifference to God. Let it be a warning to us about thinking that there are better things to do in life than devote oneself to worshiping Jesus. That those better things, though they are and can be good things, that they're not to keep us ultimately from entering God's kingdom. Though they may be good things, they are not ultimate things in comparison to Jesus. None of those things are more important than him. The consequences for indifference and having better things to do than Jesus is massive. It's eternally massive. Those consequences are eternal. But as God's people, this warning should not drive us away from God. It should actually cause us to press further into God. And so, brothers and sisters, what if you notice yourself, thinking about indifference here, and apathy toward God? What if you notice yourself not desiring God, feeling indifferent to him, getting more excited about all the other things that you have got going on in your life other than Jesus Christ himself? Number one, that is normal. You are not weird. That happens to all of us. Number two, 
return to God. Return to God. Those invited to the wedding responded the way that they did. Why? Because they lost sight of who the king was. They forgot what an honor it was to be invited to the son's wedding. They forgot about the authority of the king, and in doing so, their hearts were numb toward all the king's benefits. I mean, he's slaughtering the fattened calf for you. This is a feast for the ages. Don't care. They forgot. Their hearts were numb. They couldn't feel that. And so the first thing to do is to return to God. Meditate, think upon God and who he is and what he has done through Jesus Christ. Remind yourself of his grace and his patience toward you. Look at this passage even. He graciously what? He repeats the invitation to them. It's not like he invites once and then rips it away and says, sorry, you rejected me, I'm done with you. He gives it back to them again. He has been gracious to you. He is patient to you. All why? So that you would be drawn further into worshiping him. Spend time meditating, thinking upon God. A couple of ways that you can begin to do this to help you move out of your indifference toward Christ. Number one, study his word with others. God has given us one another to help stoke the fire of our affection for him. If you notice that spiritual apathy is going on in your life, then schedule to meet with people in the body throughout the the week to help with that. Where the word is coming into your life, there the spirit is working in concert with the word to bring about new life, to recharge that weary heart. The spirit is there to do that, to convict, to comfort. And so get in God's word with God's people. Praise God that he's given you one another to be able to do that. Schedule time with one another. Ask questions of the text and how you can be reflecting upon God throughout the week. Number two, read good books about God. A couple of books here that I would highly recommend. The first one is by Matthew Barrett called None Greater. This is a wonderful book on the undomesticated attributes of God, right? To think upon God. Think deep thoughts upon him. The other one is J.I. Packer's classic work, Knowing God. It is dense, but it is a worthy time for you to spend in reading his book. It's absolutely wonderful. It's a classic. The other one is to spend time thinking upon Christ's heart for sinners and sufferers called Gentle and Lowly. This is an absolutely wonderful book. Praise God it came out during the pandemic because it ministered to so many during that time. Wonderful books to be able to think upon God, to meditate upon Christ and his heart for sinners and for sufferers. And then finally, pray. Pray. In Tim Keller's book on prayer, he says this, A triune God would call us to converse with him because he wants to share the joy that he has. Prayer is our way of entering into happiness of God himself. Friends, do you want to enter into the joy of your triune God? Then spend time in prayer. Spend time praying through the member directory, right? You've got the member directory there that we give to you after each new members meeting. You've got scriptures all in the back. Go to the back of that. Pray through those scriptures for the members on that page. Pray for the children there. Pray for other things that are throughout the member directory. Start there, but spend time 
and prayer so that you may experience the joy of your triune God. Well, friends, watch out for the destruction that comes to all who reject the king. Fight rejecting the king by returning to the king. Point number three, beware of being unprepared for the wedding. Verses 11 to 14, beware of being unprepared for the wedding. Those who rejected the king's invitation to the wedding banquet were not worthy of it in verse 8. They don't deserve to come because they rejected the invitation. Yet in the wake of this rebellion came a rescue mission. Came a rescue mission. Rather than shutting down the wedding banquet, what does the king do? He mercifully sends out his servants to everybody. (laughs) To everybody on the outskirts, right? These aren't just any guests. They're those on the outskirts of the city, the fringes of society, like the tax collectors and prostitutes in Matthew 21, verse 32. This picture is a representation of Israel's rejection of Jesus and now the gospel going to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. God's servants invite all to come to the wedding. Those that we wouldn't expect to enter into the kingdom are now entering in. And as we look at these verses, I can't help but think of Rosario Butterfield's testimony that we heard this past Tuesday night. A tenured English professor at a prestigious university who regarded Christianity as problematic and downright damaging comes to faith in Christ through a pastor's just faithful witness to her. By all accounts, she is an unlikely convert. She's not one that we would expect to come to faith. But what is impossible with God, what is impossible with man, is possible with God. And it's a reminder that it's only God who can transform the hardened heart. That this invitation to come to the wedding is all of grace. It is all of grace. There are no stipulations for receiving this invitation. Hey, you need to do this, that, and the other in order for you to actually get the invitation. There's none of that. Entrance into God's kingdom isn't based on one's morals, based upon one's moral aptitude, nor is it based upon one's familial pedigree. It's not based on any of it. Both the good and the evil are invited. Well, I mean, like anybody can get in. <laughs> Instead, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But though this invitation is all of grace, this grace is not cheap. It's not cheap. Notice who the king finds at the wedding in verse 11. The banquet is filled with guests. It's a raucous party, filled with guests. And it says that when the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed for a wedding. And so he said to him, friend, right, you see the tone, the gracious tone, the patient tone of the king. He says, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless, right? This is the foil in the plot where I think the main idea really kind of is thrust into the spotlight. This man received the invitation, or so it seems, but he didn't enter the wedding banquet. Though the invitation is given freely, without preconditions, life in the kingdom comes with conditions. This man has no excuse because he knows that he's not properly dressed. Though all are invited, no one will be at this wedding by mistake. No one will be here by mistake. The only way to enter God's kingdom 
and to partake in this wedding feast is by being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. True disciples of Jesus wear the right clothes. And friend, praise God that anyone in here who repents of their sin and trusts in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they are then clothed in Christ's righteousness. They are acceptable and right in God's eyes. Not because of anything that we have done or that they have done, but solely based upon the finished work of Christ to die for our unrighteousness so that we might receive his righteousness through faith alone. Jesus is the only way into this wedding. These wedding clothes represent the righteousness of Christ. But you know what else they represent? Revelation 19, verse 8. They represent the righteous deeds of the saints. The point that's being made is that the righteousness of Christ in us will produce the right life that God requires. It will. If you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, then you will produce the righteous deeds. Right? This is how we prepare ourselves for that wedding day when Christ returns. And yet, sadly, there are many who say that they have been clothed with Christ's righteousness, much like this man in the text, but their life looks nothing like that righteousness. Friends, beware of being unprepared for the wedding. Beware of nominalism. Professing to follow Jesus without practicing the holy life that he requires. Nominalism is happy to profess faith without confessing sin. It's happy hanging out with Christians without being held accountable. It's happy with saying the prayer, walking the aisle, but not committing oneself to loving the body of Christ. It is happy to show up so long as it does not cost them anything. Friend, ask yourself if this is you. That's the point right here in this third point of the text. Ask yourself if this is you. Heed the warning of verse 13. That's what judgment is meant to do. It's causing you to heed its warning. That though the man thought he was in the wedding, instead his end was actually being thrown into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. We don't want that for anybody in here. That's why I'm pleading with you and commanding you to come to Jesus and then live the right life that God requires. Beware of being unprepared for the wedding. You can start by turning from your sin and trusting in Christ and begin living the right life that God requires. This invitation is all of grace, but that grace is never cheap. We're not only to receive the invitation, but to live like we've truly received it. We can look at a text like this. We can see all of this judgment. And yet, we can miss a final character in this text. Look at verse 14. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Though many hear the gospel invitation, only few respond properly. And those who do show that they are chosen by God. The doctrine of election for some seems concerning. But you bet it's not concerning for God. God actually gives the doctrine of election to comfort your soul. He gives it to comfort you. Brothers and sisters, as those chosen by God, don't miss the joy that this text is meant to evoke in you. Though you may come in feeling like you are lacking 
Your eternity is not lacking. Your life is not lacking in Christ. Your seat has been reserved with your name on it at the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is a feast of the ages that you get to partake in. The good news about this wedding, the good news about this wedding is that you are the bride. You are the bride. Those who are in Christ are the bride of this wedding. Your future is bright. Your future is secure in Christ. Now is the time of preparation for that glorious day because participation in a son's wedding is for all who have prepared for it. Let's pray together.